The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Financial Excellence with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Host and moderator Bonnie D. Graham talks with the experts about how game-changing technologies can help you achieve financial excellence for your company. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place. Today's bud, uh, buzz, a big bad word. It's five letters, but it is big. It's fraud. We've covered this before. We're covering it again. It's still here. OMG, let's get started. As hard as your company works to put in place effective anti-fraud processes and tools, you know you think you have the latest and greatest. The fraudsters are out there working even harder to circumvent whatever you may try. It's kind of a vicious cycle if you think about it. But take heart. Predictive analytics technology may be able to help you understand the emerging fraud patterns. Yes, there are something called patterns. And adapt strategies against new types of attack. There are always new types of attack coming down the pike. I have a panel of three experts who are going to help us figure this out and see if indeed predictive analytics is the answer to your prayers as far as fighting fraud goes. Let me introduce my first guest. First up on the panel is Derek Snadiff. He is a senior manager of Advanced Analytics with Deloitte Transactions and Business Analytics. That's a big business card. Let me read the quote that Derek sent. He says, by some estimates, the typical organization loses 5% of its revenues to fraud each year, which translates to a potential projected global fraud loss of over 3.5 trillion. I said trillion with a T. And he goes on, fraud perpetrators are sophisticated. They're well-organized and they're adaptive. As soon as one scheme is detected, another one materializes. And some of that was from the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. Welcome, Derek, to Financial Excellence with Game Changers. How are you? Doing great. Thank you so much for that warm introduction, Bonnie. I, I'm glad it was warm. You know, it's uh, we're up in the 80s almost here overnight in New York, so it, it actually is quite warm. We had freezing temperatures and cold rain, what, seven days ago and snow the week before, and here we are. I'm glad it's warm. Derek, talk to me. Great opening quote for our topic on fraud. 5% of revenues, that's a lot of bucks, isn't it? It sure is, yeah. Uh, first of all, just wanted to uh, express my appreciation for um, inviting me to participate in this discussion, and it's a real pleasure to be with uh, my fellow panelists. Um, but yeah, Wonderful. I think Bonnie, there's a couple things to take note of uh, with regard mm-hmm. to the quote I provided. Um, first, as you mentioned, is really the magnitude of the problem we're dealing with here. I mean, five percent of company revenues on average, and also three point five trillion dollars in total on an annual basis. I mean, this is a massive problem, um, mm-hmm. but it's also growing. Um, we're seeing fraud is on the rise at a, really an alarming rate due to advances in technology, uh, improved coordination, lower barriers to entry. Um, economic conditions, a whole host of different factors are seeing fraud on the rise. And, and it really affects all organizations, um, you know, because fraud takes on just so many different forms. I mean, this can be, you know, people trying to collect tax refunds that they don't deserve. 
It could be fraud, waste, and abuse with health care. It could be phony insurance claims. It could be account takeovers with uh, financial institutions. It could even be things like fraud within your supply chain uh, with improper invoices from suppliers or maybe abuse by employees of travel and entertainment expenses. Um, so, it, it, you know, it really is a, 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 a significant problem. And I think, secondly, it's worth noting, you know, who are these perpetrators that we're up against? And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's really no sort, shortage of talent on the fraud search side, unfortunately. Um, you know, in many ways, this is kind of a pay-for-performance kind of business. Um, you know, if you're not a very good fraudster, you're probably not going to, you know, be successful in, in, you know, stealing money, and you may end up getting caught and even going to jail. Um, so we're, we're typically dealing with people, though, that are very smart, very sophisticated. Um, you know, they're organized, patient, they're sharing information. Um, often they're engaging insiders to understand the detection environment of organizations. Um, you know, they might be utilizing stolen identities and personal information. Um, and, you know, they're really often employing high-velocity attacks where they're kind of probing an organization's defenses. Once they find a vulnerability, then they attack. Um, and, and as you mentioned in the lead, and they're continually evolving their fraud strategies. So we always need to try to stay one step ahead. So, yeah, I, I think those are two kind of important points just to set the context for the rest of the discussion. Very important. Thank you. It actually, you've depressed me, Derek. I'm really depressed because you mentioned all of these tentacles of fraudsters. It's not just somebody who's out there doing it for a game. You didn't mention the game mentality. Oh, I think I can crack that one wide open and walk away with the bucks. But it could be... Uh, Holes detected inside, vulnerabilities, weaknesses, where somebody has a gripe or a grief or they just need more money and they see it as a lucrative side job, if you will. Very depressing. So we're up against a lot. Thank you for indeed setting that level setting for us. Let me bring on a second panelist today. Joining us is Michael P. Kanjemi. Michael, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yes, you are. Oh, good. Michael has a lot of letters after his name. He's a CPA. He's a CGMA. He's the president of Kenjemi Company, and he's the former president, CEO, and director of Etienne Agnier Group. I used to wear those shoes and carry those purses, and I'm, I'm a great admirer of the craft of Etienne Agnier. Michael, you sent me the following quote on our topic today. Imagination is more important than knowledge from none other than our most popular quoted person alive or dead, Albert Einstein. So, Welcome, Michael. How are you? And tell me why you picked this Einstein quote, please. Well, Bonnie, thank you very much. And uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here as well on SAT Radio. I appreciate the opportunity to share some of my thoughts. Basically, um, as, as uh, um, Derek set it up, uh, the fraudsters are very creative people. My background is I started out life as a financial person with a big, heavy IT um, interest and experience and went went on to be a CFO and do a lot of financial automation. I guess now that you're looking back, I I, I think one of the barriers for finance people is their um, sort of lack of creativity. They sort of play by the numbers and like to be in safe areas and things that they understand. And and I think that's an impediment. Uh, I've been devoting a, a bit of time to the data analytics space in the last five years did a major research project with the Financial Executives International Research Foundation, looked at about 15 or 20 of the biggest companies in America, and we found that all of them are doing uh, data analytics and monitoring of data, but uh, the pace is very slow, the implementation Mm -hmm. process is very difficult for them, and um, it's just not, they're just not taking advantage enough 
of uh, the capabilities of data analytics and the use of uh, technology that's available to them. And one of the impediments that I see is basically a lack of creativity. When we meet with these big companies and tell them about the technology that's available, they say, well, what should we do with it? And that's the tricky part because they should be figuring out what kinds of problems they have, understanding the technology and being creative about implementing um, technology solutions for it. Um, it reminds me, I'm probably the oldest panelist, and mm. uh, thank you, Bonnie, for, for uh, remembering our, our brand, ATN Anya. It's also uh, been around a long time. Um, early in my So have career. I. So have I. <laughs> <laughs> well, Go ahead. It has the brand staying power. So mm -hmm. uh, early in my career, I was uh, trained to be an IT auditor. Basically, in the early stages, after computers got developed, and people really didn't understand, the public accounting firms didn't understand, and they trained me, sent me to IBM, learned about the technology. And then I would go to try to assist my audit teams to implement IT auditing and use the computer to do audits. And um, I got that same question back then, 40 years ago. They would mm -hmm. say to me, well, what should I automate? And so it was a long process. And the same thing is happening now with, with data analytics. Back then, we had to look for where were you spending a lot of time doing manual things and how could it be automated? Or when, you know, audits of companies that were all online, um, I remember doing the audit of New York Off-Track Betting or American Express where everything hmm. was automated. Then the auditors had to learn to use the computer to actually do their audits. So the same thing's happening now with data analytics. It's coming. It's very exciting. I hope we'll talk more about the exciting part. But I do think one of the impediments is that I think um, the financial fraudsters are more creative than the uh, financial record keepers. Very interesting. I'm not used to hearing the word imagination or creativity aligned with the, the title of CPA or, or CFO or anybody of that ilk. So that's very interesting that you would say you need to be more creative and imaginative on the prevention or detection side. Michael, thank you also for great setting us up in addition to what Derek said. And now it's time to bring on our third panelist, rounding out our panel last, but certainly not least. I've known him for a while and delighted to have him back on the radio. It's Jerome Pugnier. I'm pronouncing it with the proper French inflection, I hope. He's a Director of Solution Marketing for SAP GRC Solutions, and Jerome has selected a very interesting quote from a character in a French 1960s cult movie. Maybe Michael remembers this one. Ne nous fâchons pas. Let's not get angry. And here's the quote. People always tend to see gangsters as stocky, dark-haired guys. It's the silliest prejudice. Welcome, Jerome Pugnier. How are you today? Hi, I'm great, Donnie. Thank you. And also delighted to be here with this great panel and to uh, exchange on this uh, exciting topic, uh, even though it depresses you, Bonnie. But <laughs> I like to have does. a little bit of um, lighter thing here. That's why I use this French movie and a little bit of humor. It's actually uh, interestingly part of a dialogue between the two characters. And one is obviously this tough guy. I mean, used to be um, probably a gangster, but he's kind of retired. And he's having this dialogue with uh, a beautiful, um, a very affluent lady um, and very obviously very pretty and he's trying to get into business with her and uh, so he tells her that and what she replies to him is um, you know I know an even sillier prejudice people think that tall blonde pretty women are not too smart 
very, very uh, wrong. Because obviously she was able to read into him <laughs> what he was up to. So Very interesting. Uh, this is really my idea here also is to just say that uh, obviously um, detecting fraud, looking for fraud, we cannot really rely on guesswork, on our instincts, on what we um, know the most or what just seems the most obvious. Uh, so we do need, we do need to be helped. Uh, we need the technology. We need really the best um, and the greatest tools um, to give us that insight um, to look into data and not just rely on our impression or um, old ideas, but on what we can find out in that is hidden and is not the most obvious. So no prejudice, but yes, um, let's use um, facts and, and analyze data and, and, and try to understand better where things are going to happen um, in terms of fraud so we know where to look. Uh, not just relying on our instinct. That's what Thank I you, Jerome. Say. I would hazard a guess that perhaps another stereotype has been broken over the years. I'm sure Derek and Michael will agree that perhaps the fraudsters could be the tall, beautiful, thin, gorgeous, blonde women who are very smart after all, instead of just the what we thought were the stocky, dark-haired guys. So so let's just flip absolutely. that on its end. Absolutely. And even could be redheads, although I don't want to say anything about my kind. So what can I tell you? I have a very important question for my three guests today to get this get us all warmed up a little more before we go to our first break. The question is, what's in your cup today? That's because Financial Excellence with Game Changers is part of our flagship series, Coffee Break with Game Changers. It's actually a very special, special, special edition. And I would like to ask my guest. So let's start with Derek Snada from Deloitte. Derek, where are you calling from and what's in your cup or what do you wish you were drinking right now? Talk to me, Derek. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm calling in from Chicago, Illinois in the United States. And, um, you know, for me, thinking back about mint tea actually takes me back to a wonderful experience I had in Morocco a few years back. Um, I was actually out there for about a month, month and a half doing a pro bono consulting project uh, where we were helping um, kind of develop economic, uh, the, econ- the economy and the tourism uh, business within Morocco. And, and it was there that I actually learned about kind of the cultural importance of mint tea uh, to the Moroccan mm-hmm. people. And, uh, you know, it, it's something that is served not only at meal times but all throughout the day. And it's especially a drink of hospitality. Um, it's kind of a way, you know, for a host to welcome um, guests. And so, you know, there's a very elaborate ceremony that goes on with, um, with the mint tea. Like what, what ends up happening is the host will, you know, the, the mint tea is actually a little bitter to start out with. And so the host will, you know, kind of within the teapot put, you know, a couple of cubes of sugar in there. And then, you know, very dramatically kind of pour out the tea into different small kind of very ornate glasses. And then he'll do a little tasting of the tea, and if it's not quite right, he pours it back in and adds more Sweet. sugar and, again, dramatically pours it out. And this goes, you know, this repeats itself until, you know, the tea is just the perfect kind of flavoring, and then it's poured out for all the guests, and, you know, and it's a very kind of hospitable and, and welcoming um, you know, ceremony that they have there. So uh, if I could be in Morocco having a, a glass of mint tea right now, that would be perfect. We'll go whoosh and we'll just transport you. And by the way, mint is one of my favorite kinds of tea. When I'm out to dinner, I will order mint tea. And most restaurants insist that they might only have peppermint. Is that the same? I'll say yes. As long as it has mint in the title, I'll take it. And the bags are so fragrant, Derek. Sometimes you just want to take the the bag out of the, the little pouch it's in or the out of the paper casing and just sniff the mint. It's wonderfully fragrant. Thanks for that lovely story. I won't ask Michael P. Kanjemi 
to top that, but we'd love to know what's in your cup or what do you wish you were drinking. Michael? Well, yeah, I'm glad you gave me that help there because I don't think I could top that, Derek. That was that was brilliantly played. I uh, have to say something about mint tea first, though. I, about two weeks ago, I had a cup of mint tea for the first time in a long time, and it's back on, on, on usually having it in the afternoon. Right now, unfortunately, I'm having an old boring cup of coffee. Hazelnut coffee is my, my favorite, and... Um, I don't have a way to connect that to what I'm going to say next, but what I'm going <laughs> you don't to have to. It's fine. It's fine. Where are you calling from, by the way, Michael? Well, I'm in I'm in Central New Jersey now, and as you may remember, this is Easter week. My wife is a teacher, so we were down at the shore, and we we uh, motored up this morning. So I'm, uh, that's why for me it was a little bit difficult the timing here. But um, I, I am right now in Central New Jersey. But I woke up this morning looking at the Atlantic Ocean. So it was a beautiful, a beautiful weekend in New Jersey. How beautiful. Tonight is the first Seder of Passover 2014, the, the uh, English version of the year. And I'll be heading to New Jersey for a Seder about an hour after the show. So I'll be heading down your way. Thank oh, you very hi. much, Michael. And Good. Jerome Pounier, where are you calling from today? And what are you drinking, Jerome? Well, I'm calling from London. And so given the time difference, obviously, this is more like tea time here. Um, so I am drinking tea, um, but not mean tea, which is a bit too sweet for me. I, although I love Morocco also, but I prefer just um, a regular green tea, um, which I picked up the habit of because it's quite healthy and I kind of like it. Good. Well, that's, that rounds us out. I think we have mostly tea drinkers today, sort of, kind of. Guess what? We're going to take a break. We're going to go to break right now for about 90 seconds. I'm going to advise my listeners, you don't want to go anywhere. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial, however you're listening. Our topic today is fighting fraud, predictive technology to the rescue. And I think a subtitle of that would be, who's more imaginative and creative, the fraud preventers, the fraud stoppers, or the fraud perpetrators. We're going to find out more from my wonderful panelists. We have Derek Snadoff from Deloitte. We have Michael P. Kanjemi at Kanjemi Company. And we have Jerome Pounier at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We'll be right back. Michael out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Unleash the leadership potential of your finance talent now. Your business needs more than just compliant reports. Today's leading finance departments are asked to support business decision-making to help companies to succeed. With SAP's risk and finance solutions, you can provide the advisory that decision-makers are looking for. No matter what data source, no matter where you are, you can find the information you need to add value. Give your finance talent the right tools to be up to the challenge. www.sap.com The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime anywhere and on any device www.sap.com 
the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Welcome back to Financial Excellence with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Comments? Questions? Send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the show at hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Financial Excellence with Game Changers. Welcome back. Here we are talking about fighting fraud, predictive technology to the rescue, question mark. We certainly hope so. Let's kick off our 30-minute roundtable marathon, I like to call it, with our first panelist, Derek Snada from Deloitte. Derek, you sent me a couple of notes before the show, and I think we're going to pick the first one here to start off the conversation. Then, of course, we'll invite Michael Kenjemi and Jerome Pugnier to chime in at any point and add their thoughts. So the comment you made to me, Derek, is organizations can not afford to be reactive when it comes to fraud. The days of lookbacks and pay and chase are over. It sounds like a movie to me. I'm, I'm expecting Cary Grant to pop out of the woodwork here somewhere. So what are lookbacks? What is pay and chase? And how do we define reactive? Talk to me, Derek. Yeah. So, you know, what we're seeing, Bonnie, over the last, I'd say, couple of years is that, you know, the methods, the techniques, the tools are such that we no longer need to wait for the fraud to occur and then kind of try to retrospectively go after it. Um, you know, that's the concept of look backs and pay and chase. You know, it, it would be the concept of, you know, we, we pay out the claim, we pay out the transaction, you know, whatever it is, and then we worry about if there's fraud. And, of course, the problem there is that, it, you know, it's very difficult once the dollars are out the door to recover it. And, and so we're at, at this very important moment, and, you know, a big trend that we're seeing is that organizations now can be much more proactive and preventative of, uh, um, of fraud occurring even, you know, from to begin with. And, you know, that, that exact time frame in terms of when you're trying to prevent the fraud from occurring really has to do with, you know, when the dollars go out the door from your organization. So, you know, if you're an organization like the IRS or CMS and, and maybe you have to make those payments and, you know, and certainly banks and credit cards, you have to make those decisions split second, you know, then you really want to have, um, you know, an enterprise fraud management approach that, you know, does it in near real time. Um, but if you're if you're in a different type of organization where you know maybe you're paying out your invoices to suppliers you know on 30 days or 90 days you know you don't need that real time capability but you do want to be able to prevent the dollars from going out the door to begin with because again it, it's hard to recover them after the fact and and Thank so you, you know just, yeah. just what we're seeing mm-hmm. is just organizations you know really you know are increasingly concerned about those financial and even reputational losses and you know and the, and the ability to recover those misappropriated funds is just too remote you know, that more and more organizations are trying to be much more kind of proactive about this. Derek, I have a question for you before Michael, Ken, Jemmy, and uh, Jerome Prunier chime in. My question is, is every enterprise currently, at, as of this exact moment in time, is every enterprise struggling with some kind of fraud, or is anybody immune to this? Is anybody sitting there listening perhaps to the show today live or, or to the replay and saying, ah, not me, it's not happening, reactive, proactive, I'm, I'm fine, I have trustworthy employees, I only hire the best consultants, uh, we run a very clean business here, we have great visibility, who needs it, we're fine. Is, is anybody immune, Derek? You know, from, from what I've seen, you know, there's use cases for um, having fraud problems virtually in every industry. I mean, there's obviously the big ones like government and healthcare and financial services, maybe even insurance. 
Um, but we're even increasingly seeing organizations in, you know, energy and resources, manufacturing, um, you know, other industries that, you know, are, are realizing that they have a fraud problem on their hands as well. And so they're trying to put in place those strong counter-fraud measures and developing and operating enterprise fraud management programs so that, again, they can avoid those financial losses and those reputational losses. And, you know, and I would also kind of broaden the, the, the definition of the word fraud here, too. I mean, fraud kind of implies that there's an intention to, to steal from an organization. But you know, even, even waste and abuse are important to try to prevent. You know, there's lots of dollars that are lost by organizations just to kind of the waste and abuse part of things. So you know, we really think about this from the context of fraud, waste, and abuse, and these, and these kind of approaches and systems really helping um, save organizations lots of dollars. Thank you very much. Michael P. Kanjemi, I know you want to say something about reactive versus proactive, and is anybody immune? What's your point of view and your experience? Well, there's, there's so many. So I, I, I started life, as I said earlier, as a financial guy, CFO. Um, fortunately, got to run the, the company as a CEO for a number of years later. But um, we were pretty aggressive at looking at our numbers, and we worried about fraud. Um, and to your point, Bonnie, about whether or not every, you know, you're sitting out there, all boards are not complacent. They're worried about it, but it comes down to how much money they're going to spend um, to prevent fraud or to try to detect it. I can use a good um, retail example, and I'm, I'm going to come back to it later since, we, since we're mm-hmm. talking about Etienne Anier's shoes here periodically. But, <laughs> but let, me, let, me, uh, let me dwell a little bit more on what Derek uh, one of the areas he selected to talk about, which was the, the disbursement. So if you're, if you're trying to audit a company or if you're concerned about anything, one good place to look is the, the disbursements. And our um, FEI research uh, project that we did looked at like 15 big companies in America, and, um, and we found that almost all of them started to do analytics work in the in the area of disbursements because they could see their return right away. So if they can catch more duplicate payments, um, they could save money, they could see what they're getting back against the cost of implementing the program. Makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Yet most companies um, still don't do, you know, utilize um, analytics enough in the disbursement area. So for example, I would talk to the CFO of a major, you know, I'm talking Fortune 100 companies Mm-hmm. And and they would tell me they use a contingency firm to you know sort through their payables to make sure they haven't paid something twice. To me, I, I if if that was my CFO, I, I'd probably want to fire him and talk about lack of creativity. It's only mm-hmm. not only lack of creativity, lack of effort. So if you use a contingency firm, you find that you paid somebody twice. You don't necessarily fix your system, and then you give half of the recovery money to a contingency firm. Seems like, to me, not the right approach. But yet, it's still difficult to get companies to invest in the software uh, to do um, what, you know, what's, this is what we call in that research project the low-hanging fruit of mm-hmm. using data analytics. It's about you know, the simplest example that you can come up with and one of the easiest ones to see your ROI. And it's certainly not predictive analytics. We're not at that point yet um, in this discussion. So uh, an, uh, an example in the retail world for me, I spent eight years as the CFO at Anya, and every year my retail division, which had stores all over the country, wanted to spend more money on loss prevention. 
Well, we would measure our inventory shrink, and, and we had an idea of what we were losing. And, you know, to your point, to Derek's point, fraud's going on everywhere all the time. If you don't think it's happening, you're just naive. The question is how much of it and then the cost-benefit mm-hmm. of implementing some kind of controls. So um, I know in my stores somewhere there were fraudulent returns. It's one of the most simple um, thefts you can do. You're in the store by yourself. You're a salesperson. You pick up a pair of shoes off the shelf. You go to the cash register. You refund the money to yourself, and you put the shoes in the back room as Ooh. if they were returned. Ooh. So for eight years, I would not spend more money on loss prevention. So what was wrong with me, or was I creative? So I, I didn't like the idea of hiring people to, to fly around the country or do you ever see the guys with the walkie-talkies in the stores with the suits and they're trying to catch sure. somebody? I thought it was a very inefficient way to do it. Ultimately, we got our software vendor for our point-of-sale system in the store to start searching through the transactions intelligently using analytics. And I know we don't have time for much, but the one example I gave before if the clerk returns a pair of shoes. So if we had a pattern of suspicious returns being defined as there's no sales in the store for two hours before the return or two hours after the return, it's a boring Monday morning in the store. There's no activity, yet there's returns. If there's a consistent pattern of that happens periodically over and over again, Maybe you want to investigate that store. So rather than send people around on airplanes with doing what I don't really understand, all that, the loss prevention stuff, and I'm sure it works uh, if you have Gucci store on Madison Avenue, for my little stores with the volume we had um, and the cost of our product, um, we wound up using that data analytics approach. Thank you very much. Great case study. We appreciate the real example, and thanks for dropping the names. Jerome Pounier, I know you have something to say in this conversation yeah. about reactive, proactive. What's your point of view about how to tackle this? Yeah, I, I do really like the, you know, the idea of, of Derek was proactive because um, I think really using proactive, predictive technology is really about uh, being able to anticipate. You know, it's you you can't just wait for fraud to happen exactly as as Derek said, uh, and it, I think also Derek talked about risk management. It, it, it's about risk. It's about you know having good insights into where the risks are. So I think where the tools really play a role is they can really help us find out the where um, where it is um, potentially going to happen and how it's going to happen because we analyze a lot of data based on history, based on what we see, and. Um, I think the term predictive, though, it's a little bit uh, misleading sometimes when you say predictive, because uh, you cannot really predict, you know, predict that something is going to happen at a certain time. But actually, it helps you predict where it could happen most likely mm-hmm. and how it could happen. So you can be prepared. Uh, I think that's what it's, it's really about um, um, here. Actually, you know, it's interesting. We, there are, I've recently saw a study that said that in most the biggest numbers of, of fraud cases have, are perpetrated by uh, a male aged between 31 and 40 with over six years of service and a graduate degree. So it's a population which is uh, pretty um, usually seen as, you know, um, you know the, the robust employee that has good experience, a good background and all that. You would not necessarily think that they would be the biggest perpetrators of fraud. Uh, some of them are pretty senior and pretty actually um, um, high in 
the hierarchy or maybe high in management. So it can be uh, not necessarily where you would look first. Um, and, and that's quite interesting to see what we can find with those analysis, with these predictive uh, analytics that sometimes is quite, quite surprising. Hmm. Do you think for these people, that this profile you just shared with us, Jerome, do you think that there's a, uh, a challenge, there's a game? You talk about these are people who sound like they're, they're part of the organization, they're trusted, they're not entry level, they're smart, they have a degree, as you said. They're of an age where they know better, they should know right from wrong, but they also know maybe, ah, uh, where am I going in my life? Maybe I'll have a little fun, fun in big quotes, uh, and, and just see what I can accomplish here in terms of fraud. Do you think there's that element? Of, are there any findings on that? Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting because uh, we're touching a little bit um, one of the areas of predictive analytics is probably a very big area. And there's a lot of uh, what is called, for example, behavioral, behavioral sorry, very difficult to pronounce, behavioral, <laughs> behavioral <laughs> analytics, right? yep. uh, which do analyze on, the law, on, on, on high volumes of data on a lot of cases. You can actually analyze where, um, you know, typical behaviors of fraudsters uh, and how they evolve also through times. Um, so these types of things also play a role more and more and, and help companies get smarter in looking in the right places. Thank you very much. Anybody want to wrap up anything uh, that Jerome just said? Or, uh, Derek, anything to circle back? Because I'm going to go in a slightly different direction here. Anybody want to add before I move? Well, I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, I'm sure Derek mm-hmm. is familiar with the fraud triangle. So there, there is uh, there's this famous um, three-part fraud um, definition, or basically the people have opportunity uh, they have uh, pressure of some kind in their life, and they have some kind of rationalization of it. And the frauds that I've investigated, I was the chief audit executive for four years and investigated two or three frauds, and it's interesting that that fraud tri- triangle really does hold up. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay. Derek, anything you want to add? Yeah, I, I would just uh, maybe I'd quickly mention, too, um, you know, I, I, kind of another inflection point that we're seeing that's allowing us to be more kind of predictive about things is that, you know, up until this point, a lot of the detection methods were more, you know, kind of extracting information out of investigators' heads and trying to code those into business rules that could look for those same type of patterns. Um, but now, like, you know, with the advent a lot of a lot of, um, you know, statistical analysis software and, and predictive analytic techniques being applied to this problem, you know, we can almost come at it from the other direction where, you know, we can comb through the data and try to identify those subtle or complex patterns that, you know, maybe a person couldn't really think of. Um, but are very associated with uh, fraudulent activity. Um, so you know, maybe as we go along here, we can we can talk some more about some of the predictive analytics. But I think that's one of the big shifts we're seeing right now as well. Thank you very much. I'm going. I'm looking at some of the talking points Michael P. Kenjemi sent me before the show, and I want to go in a direction we have touched on this quite a bit. But I want to focus and hone in. I want to talk about what we what the the title of the show was: Can predictive analytics come to the rescue? So here's a, a point that Michael sent me. He said on the topic of fraud discovery, the question is: Will analytics, even predictive analytics, find all frauds or eliminate fraud? And then I want to add what Michael said. He said most tools we had could not detect fraud. The frauds I followed up on were uncovered by clues and people telling management about them. 
However, I believe with the advent of predictive analytics, we can discover more frauds, but not all. Let's talk a little bit. We just mentioned behavioral analytics. I think Jerome brought that in. Uh, uncovered by clues of people talking about them. Is this still the, the best way, Michael, that somebody is a whistleblower or a tattletaler, where they call that 800 anonymous number? Hey, guess who's just doing a lot of returns of the shoe department on Mondays during quiet time? So so what do you, what do you find in terms of the the opening that door to, yes, there is fraud, you should take a look at it. What do you see? Well, so in my comments to you, I kind of talked about the past and the future. I I had Mm -hmm. to labor over that a little bit because the whole predictive wave that's coming is coming slowly. It's coming. And and so basically I came down on the position that it will help and it will and it will predict some things. So, but if you if you look at my career, my my most of the frauds were discovered by um, people, you know, telling on other people. Truckers uh, weigh the truck the truck weighed too much, you know, at a scale, and therefore we found out that people were stealing copper when I was in the copper industry. Um, somebody was getting a payoff uh, based on the uh, extra value of the. Uh, minerals that were in some kind of a flux material that we would buy hmm. and the values of the minerals went down to the point where the payoff was greater than the people could afford to pay off they were losing money so the you know they walked into our office on park avenue and said uh, you know i'm paying off somebody in el paso texas so um, hmm. that's how we found them i am a big believer that we will be able to derive tremendous value from predictive analytics, but I think we're at the beginning of the stages of looking at it. The easiest explanation that I use for anybody to understand in terms of why predictive anal- or how predictive analytics are working was given to me by the CIO of Intel. She's got a three-pilot project going on into, uh, 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 to do predictive analytics, and she used the, the weather because everybody could understand that. Apparently, um, we don't live in the zone where you get tornadoes, but the tornado warnings in the tornado alley, I think they call it in the United States, were as little as five minutes. You know, they'd blow a signal and the tornado was coming through in five minutes. Mm. By using the data that they now have and running it through the models that help us predict storms, and, and I'm, I'm starting to see it that the, the accuracy goes up even, you know, in general when I just look at the weather, they're now able to predict these tornadoes with 30 to 40 minutes warning. So the problem we're dealing with today is, is that we have all this data, and the solution is that we need to figure out ways to look at the data uh, to make creative guesses into the future. Um, another example I use in the financial area, there's a company, Oversight Systems, that I've done a lot of work with, and they basically do a lot of... Um, Disbursements focus, right? So there are, they, they have systems of analytics for T&E and for accounts payable like we talked about before. But they developed something for um, FCPA, uh, companies that have problems where they potentially, you know, have given a, a bribe in a foreign country, really difficult to find. And what they do is they sort through uh, not only disbursements but two or three different types of data, and then they kind of do a correlation analysis. They develop what they call a suspicion index. And then I think somebody used the term before. Then you kind of guess maybe some of these transactions are problems. And the good news is that even the, like the government, the Department of Justice gives you credit. You know, if you do have a problem for having attempted even with systems like this to use uh, a form of predictive analytics. So I, I, as I said, I think most frauds are, you're going to find still find out about them 
through people. Uh, but I think that this is a, a new field that's, that's coming on, and I find it very exciting to work in it in this area. It is it is very exciting. Thank you very much. Jerome, I'm going to ask if you have any comments on Michael, or do you want to go into the uh, take us through sure. how predictive analytics tools are developing, you told me. You said they're becoming more widely available, more powerful to help companies do all kinds of things, including improving the efficiency of their investigation. So why don't you take us fast forward a little bit to what do you see from the data scientist perspective as far as what's coming down the pike or what's, don't go five years in the future, that's the last part of the show, but what do you find is, what is the honing of these tools to make them sharper and more effective for companies trying to fight fraud? Jerome? Yeah, um, absolutely, and, and it's a great point that uh, Michael was, was making, but I, I would add that obviously we will find more fraud. We'll be able to detect more and more fraud because of, yes, the, the advancement of the technology. Uh, but it's also not just tech detection because we, we think all about detection, but it can also help you reduce the number of frauds that are going to happen. It's also about deterrence because... Um, you know, predictive technology will give you also ways to see where the risks are, as we were saying earlier, um, and and put, for example, better controls in place, you know, better mitigating controls, so prevent better, uh, reduce the chances that's going to happen, uh, maybe bring up some new policies, uh, corporate policies, so that people will have to uh, know what the rules of the games are and, and be warned before they commit those fraud potentially. Um, so I think that's, 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 that's also about prevention, detection, prevention, and, and globally, uh, in the end, the outcome would be the, the, the same. We'll be able to reduce fraud and, and lose less money. Um, now, predictive tools um, obviously are developing, and they're also getting um, easier to use uh, uh, because um, one of the things is there could be a, a little bit of a danger to put everything in the hands of, of the experts. You know, the, of course, there's more and more data analysts. I think it's a type of job that is uh, growing. There's a lot of demand on the market. Companies are looking for, for these uh, very expert data analysts that would do the most complex analysis and all that. But we also want to have technologies that are approachable by the user because, and, and, and they, this is something that we're beginning to see that predictive analytics uh, are getting easier to use. They're new tools that are approachable by a business user. Uh, they can learn to use those to uh, directly, um, um, you know, do their fraud detection and investigation themselves, because obviously the, the interest there is to bring together the skills of uh, these, these uh, fraud investigators have a lot of knowledge and experience. And, and obviously, I said, we can't rely on guesswork, but they have also, um, you need to combine actually the best of the two. You have the technology that helps you uh, seeing where the risks are, where you need to look for, but also the experience and the skills of these people. So if you can bring those together and they're able to have access to these tools, that can really help a lot uh, companies to fight against fraud with, with very, very uh, good warriors there. Thank you, Jerome. Derek, I want to bring you in. Derek's native from Deloitte. Following up on, on what Jerome was just saying, I want to talk to you briefly about EFM, Enterprise Fraud Management, in terms of a company's approach. How should an enterprise bring everything together? You talk about strategy, people, process, analytics, technology, governance. That's a lot. Who needs to run this type of, is it an office? Is it a, a subset of the C-suite? Who gets to put this all together in a thoughtful and well-honed approach to protect and prevent. Derek, what do you see? Yeah, I think you said it very well, Bonnie. It, 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 you do need a very well-thought-out and deliberate approach um, to detecting and preventing fraud. And, you know, the, 
you know, we, we found that a leading practice is to have um, an enterprise fraud management office. Um, it, you know, and, and the size of this can obviously vary based on, you know, the degree to, to which you have a fraud problem and, and other things like that. But, you know, what, what we typically see is organizations, at least at this point, have a lot of kind of siloed approaches to looking after fraud. And, you know, what one group might look at actually could have a lot of applicability to other fraud applications throughout an organization. And so there's real value in kind of centralizing um, one an, an organization's fraud management operations such that you're, you know, the name of the game here is basically having better data, better insights, and being more agile than the fraudsters. And having more of kind of a centralized approach and, and a comprehensive one really can make a big difference. And, and you know, the, the point I guess I would just underline is, you know, it's not just the technology. I mean, the technology enables and empowers a lot of, um, you know, the fraud detection work. But you really do need to have kind of a strategy. You need to have the right people to both, you know, the, the data scientists to build the rules and models as well as the investigators to investigate the leads. You need your processes in place to make sure that there's, you're kind of uh, treating and dealing with the, the fraud uh, leads in the best possible manner. Um, of course, using a comprehensive set of analytics. Uh, you know, to me, the, the biggest thing with analytics is, you know, there's a number of different techniques out there. There's you know, anomaly detection, predictive models, social network analysis, entity analytics. And, you know, and each of them provide a different, um, you know, kind of piece of the puzzle when you're looking at fraud. Um, you know, because some of them will look more at kind of groups and network and collusive behavior. Others will look at kind of point-in-time transactions. You know, think some of the techniques are better for looking for emerging patterns versus well-established ones. Um, so, you know, uh, to me, what you know, our, our you know, what we find is very important is just having a comprehensive approach that kind of brings all of these things together, centralizes them, and deploys them in the most effective manner possible. Thank you, Derek. Quick question for you before I invite uh, Michael and Jerome to chime in on this point. In a mid-sized company, let's say lower-end SME, small to mid-sized enterprise, would it be easier to just put processes in place from the get-go when you build your core team, when you hire, as you grow, to make sure that people know we don't tolerate fraud here? Or does it get out of control at some point? In other words, does a small to mid-sized company need an enterprise fraud management approach, a team, an office, a, a chair with somebody, these letters monogrammed across the back or towels in the, in the washroom that say, EFM, don't try it here. <laughs> Is it easier for a small company to say, it's not going to happen, don't even think about it, or is it going to happen anyway, and they should build in EFM into their their management approach. Derek, quickly. Yeah, I would think it's important to kind of build in um, some degree of fraud detection into your process, you know, as soon as you can. I mean, uh, to Jerome's point, there's a certain um, kind of deterrence effect, too, uh, you know, like when you have appropriate um, procedures in place, appropriate analytics in place that, you know, people know that if they try, they're not going to be successful. Um, so, again, it could be small, and you can kind of scale and grow with the company. But, you know, I think um, kind of establishing that at the beginning is a, you know, a good practice. Okay. Uh, Michael, you want to comment on that? I can't wait. I think okay. uh, what, we, <laughs> what we heard is an emerging trend. And what companies around the country, I, I'm on a, a committee, a GRC committee of Financial Executives International, and we talk about this in our meetings. And um, big companies, no doubt, will implement enterprise fraud management teams. Uh, it, apparently right now it reports in all different places. The history as I see it is um, around the time of Sarbanes-Oxley, which was post-Enron and the big problems. Uh, 
it was kind of being advised the, the, to, to look at the models from financial institutions, which, by the way, didn't work. So I, I think banks and brokerage firms had the best enterprise risk management. It was all centered around credit risk, market risk, but they were really good at it compared to a fashion company or a mining company, two industries I was in. So since then, um, all kinds of things have been attempted, and the concept of having these enterprise uh, risk management or enterprise fraud management teams across the company has become a popular idea. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, and who can argue with it? I mean, there needs to be a coordinated effort. And if you're talking about the Fortune 100, maybe the Fortune 500, I think um, you know the, the practicality of doing a, a, something like that is there. But, Bonnie, I think you hit the ball out of the park. When you get to the SMEs, so I spent half my life in a Fortune 500 company and the other half in a, in a AT&T. It was only $200 million in sales. You weren't mm-hmm. building an enterprise fraud management system. You're absolutely correct that, that it's, it's got to be built in. Every yeah. manager in a business is managing risk every day. So they've got to manage the risk. They've got to look for fraud. And it's a big challenge, unfortunately. And, yeah, maybe you would be better off if you were in a big organization that had other departments that could come in, you know, and help. Um, but, uh, but I think uh, for SMEs, they're not building these new, you know, big structures of overhead uh, to, to help manage this uh, because it just doesn't fit into their P&L model. Thank you. I have a newsflash for my three panelists. Thank you, Michael. I'm not cutting you off, but the newsflash is we didn't take our final break, and we've got five minutes till the end of the show. I couldn't bring myself to interrupt the conversation because you all had so much to say. So we're now officially in the predictions round, which we call the crystal ball, and officially I can give you each exactly one minute on the clock. I'm sorry. I know you love to talk, and you have great information. We're probably going to schedule a part two, or I'll bring you on my coffee break with Game Changer Show if you'd love to come back. So let's start with Derek Snader at Deloitte. Derek, if we met again five years from today, 2019, or let's say 2020, is hindsight if we met again in the year 2020, tell me in the next 60 seconds what would be different. Can you predict how predictive technology will come to the rescue, or will it, in fighting fraud? One minute, go. Okay. You know, I, I think what I'm seeing right now is, you know, as we've discussed, fraud detection prevention, and, and especially using predictive analytics to, to do that, you know, it's still in its early stages and it's growing. Um, you know, I, you know, I think at this point we're seeing that it's it can be a real competitive differentiator for certain organizations. I mean, you see even banks advertising their ability to help their customers prevent fraudulent activity. And so right now a lot of it is very proprietary and kind of closely held by, you know, each organization what their fraud detection approaches are. Um, but I think, you know, as fraud detection prevention becomes more commonplace in the coming years, um, I think you'll see kind of greater collaboration and knowledge sharing um, you know, so like, you know, it, within an industry, if certain new patterns and certain types of uh, fraud are coming out, you'll see more kind of collaboration amongst those in the industry to really try to prevent uh, the fraud from occurring. Because, you know, fraud's here now. It, it, it's not going anywhere, you know, just like right. how, you know, um, police always need to deal with crime. You know, there's always going to be people that need to uh, deal mm-hmm. with and prevent fraud from occurring. Thank you, Derek. Michael P. Ken. Jimmy, I can give you exactly 60 seconds. I'm not kidding. I'm 60 at my seconds. Clock, so I'm going to just go right in. Yeah, go. I, think, um, I think the, the future is going to be brighter. I think we will be looking at big data and looking at the data within social media and figuring out ways to, do, uh, pre- to predict things um, in ways that we haven't even fathomed right now. And I, I think the creativity of the American technology 
area is the is will carry the day even over into maybe the more state areas like finance we will continue to follow the model of the as derek mentioned again the financial services industry they they're the kind of the leaders because their product is money and when it goes out the door it's gone um, I think we'll see the evolution. We started out, this, a lot of this started in audit with products like Caseware and Idea, they, you know, looking through data. And we will jump forward in predictive analytics uh, by having smart analytics built in. And my last point, five years from now, we'll be using video in ways that we haven't even imagined today to, to, to identify and then also use it for predictions as well. I love it. Everybody put your makeup on before you commit fraud. We want you to look good. Okay, and let's round up this predictions round with my friend Jerome Pugnier at SAP. One minute, exactly one minute. Go, Jerome. Yeah, I also want to be optimistic and, and, and hope the future is brighter. I think these predictive technologies are going to really help because uh, they are capable of, of looking at enormous amounts of data and a great diversity of data, and it goes very fast. You know, these work real time. We can now really analyze data real time and react very quickly. So, the custom, so the, obviously the companies would be much more agile in their, in their fighting against fraud in, in building up these enterprise fund management. And I think it will also have impacts even potentially in being smarter in their governance. And it's also about ethics because what happens mm-hmm. often if you look at it, who, pro, who, who makes fraud? Who, where does it come from? Disgruntled employee. Because they're not motivated. They're not well treated. Companies need to be also smarter in these. And because they have those behavioral analytics and all that, it gives them indication where which are the, the vulnerable employees? How can I make sure that I manage my resources well, that people are motivated, that they have the right information so they won't try to be tempted in those um, um, wrong paths? Thank you, Jerome. I'm going to have to stop this party right now because I have my predictions. Guess what? Tomorrow's Tuesday. It's HR Trends with Game Changers, 9 a.m. Pacific. Wednesday, Coffee Break with Game Changers, 8 a.m. Pacific. Thursday, we round out the week with Future of Business with Game Changers at 7 a.m. Pacific. Get up early. It's worth it. And next Monday, we're right back here at 10 a.m. Pacific with Financial Excellence with Game Changers. Thank you so much to Derek Snadeff at Deloitte, Michael P. Kenjemi at Kenjemi Company, formerly with ATNA. And Jerome Pugnier at SAP. And a shout out to Aaron Hughes, Chris Grundy, Elizabeth Milne, Birgit Starmans at SAP for sponsoring the series, and to Michael, our engineer, and the Business Channel team at World Talk Radio. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and I have a call to action for all of you. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today and prevent fraud while you're at it. We'll talk to you tomorrow right here on HR Trends with Game Changers. Have a great one. Bye bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Financial Excellence with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to hashtag SAPRADIO and join host Bonnie D. Graham again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, here on the Business Channel, wishing you a game-changing week. Game-changing week.